Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yardena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, Lamed Chet, 38. Okay, we are in the throes of cooking, which is the throes of Hilchot Shabbat. Um, and what <laughs> there's so much that, ha- that is happening about the essence of cooking, I would say, on this daf. We have, most specifically, a decree, which is referred to in the first, I don't know, much of the first Amud, and we're going to start with what the decree is, even though it's referred to by the Gemara before it actually gets to it, right? It talks about, oh, and then the decree, and before the decree, and after the decree, and this is this, and it doesn't tell you yet what the decree is. Here is the decree. My Gezerta, what is the decree? The Amarav Yehuda Bar Shmuel, Amarav Abba, Amarav Kahana, Amarav. Betzchila hayu omrim hamavashel b'shabat Initially, they would say that some who, someone who cooked on Shabbos, Bishogeg, and we'll define these terms momentarily, Bishogeg could eat, and someone who ate Bemezid could not eat, would not be permitted to eat. It's not about ability, it's about uh, permitted. But who had in the Shokeach, somebody who forgot, right, that, that such a person would um, be allowed, right, if it's unwitting, if it's unintentional. What happened is that there was an increase in the number of people who intentionally, you know, allowed the cooking to take place and said, oops, we forgot. So then they they went back and established a knas, a fine, so to speak, upon somebody who would forget, which means that they prohibited it. Now, I just want to define these terms. Um Bemezid, right? Someone who does something bemezid or bizadon, you'll hear sometimes, means that they did it intentionally, that they knew that what they were doing was this act. They meant, in the context of Yilchot Shabbat, it's a little bit different in the context of other things. Here, it means specifically that they meant to do the act and that they meant to violate Shabbat, right? And that's bemezid. Beshogeg means very specifically that the person did not intend either to do the act or to violate Shabbat. So that there's a certain amount of like, for either you forgot that it was Shabbos, you forgot that this act is a violation of Shabbat, whatever. And generally speaking, or as we've discussed previously, Bishogig is very often going to get a status or a halachic status of patura valasur. You are exempt from having to bring a korban, but you're not allowed to do it. So in this case, it's a really different kind of um, outcome because we're talking about food and cooking. And the question of the outcome is, are you permitted to use that food? Are you permitted to eat that food? And the answer is exactly this, right? If you have cooked it, meaning if the act of cooking took place, uh, let's say, let's define cooking here just for the moment, because the Gemara does something different. If the act of cooking, let's call it the chemical reaction that, you know, takes raw food and makes it cooked food, right? If that took place and it happened, bishogig, meaning, and the Gemara discusses this previously, and we'll come back to it, the idea that something got left on the burner by accident or on a plata, right? Or in the or in the coals, right? It got left by accident and it was raw and now it's cooked and you didn't mean for that to happen. So the chemical process took place and now your food is cooked. May you eat it? And the answer is, well, did you mean for it to happen? If you didn't mean for it to happen, then the answer is yes. Then you're allowed to. You're allowed to eat it. Beshogeg, 
means you did not intend for the cooking to take place or you did not intend to violate Shabbat. And then the Gezerah, this decree, and I really find it, you know, kind of beautiful. It says there is an increase in the number of forgetting, instances of forgetting, quote unquote, right? Meaning really they meant to leave it, but they, kind of, they said they forgot and therefore was permitted to eat. And it happened so often that, you know, that there was no longer any question that it was real forgetting. And it was kind of like a careless, yes, yes, it'll be fine. Or even maybe stronger than that, I'm going to intentionally make sure that this is how my food cooks. And I'm going to tell everybody that I forgot. And therefore, I'll be able to eat it. And so the answer is no, that's, that is not allowed. You know, at, at a certain point, there's a recognition that what's what, that's what, that what is going on here is playing games. And that game playing is not acceptable. And, you know, don't take Hilchot Shabbat lightly. Now, what I find particularly interesting here is, in the first case, as I said, the definition here is not chemical, right? It's not, we don't define halachic cooking, halachic bishul, as simply the act of taking raw food and making it cooked food, right? Because otherwise, if that were the case, then the question of intent and, and the question of intent with regard to violating Shabbat would be irrelevant, right? It's a chemical process. What else do you need? And the answer is no, no. This is a matter of what is your connection to the malacha, meaning not just the physical act, but the the, prohib- the prohibited act from a perspective of Hilchot Shabbat. Were you meaning to keep it? If you're meaning to keep it, you know, if you and you simply were neg- you you neglected to realize that this was an issue, for example, or you truly forgot, well, then we're not going to penalize you. We, Chazal, the Torah, is not going to penalize you and you're allowed to eat that food because you did not have intent to cook it on Shabbat. You did not have intent to violate the halacha. The food itself is available to you. So our definitions are not what they appear. And we've talked about this before, right? Cooking is not cooking. Cooking here has to be a violation of Shabbat, an intentional violation of Shabbat to end up with prohibited food. Otherwise, the phenomenon of your food cooking is not inherently, automatically, necessarily a problem. Well, this is just the further expansion, and I mentioned this yesterday, of how the Gemara, whenever we're introduced to a new malacha, finds layer upon layer a different way of analyzing it. So first it started with you know, how much does it need to be cooked? Now we've added into the concept of intention of cooking. And at the end of our DAF, you know, which we'll talk about briefly, even the source of, and continuing on to the um, next step, the source of the heat is a different layer as well to all of this. Um, And I think this particular thing, the particular question of forgetting, right, that you left something on the stove and you forgot it, um, which I myself personally found a little bit of a perplexing scenario. Like, how did you really forget or leave something on a stove before Shabbat? I know I shared yesterday, you know, a a case of like where I left something in an oven, I ran out of the house. And I know how that happened. It's because I put something up to cook, not at a normal time that I cooked. I did it in the morning. You know, I was cooking dinner for someone. But like really, Arab Shabbat, you like forgot that you left something on a pot. But I think even the way that it's introduced shows us that there's sort of a, um, uh, you know, it's, there's an ambivalence about this particular question. And so I'm going to read, I'm going to go earlier, right? The Gezerah 
of how it came about is introduced mid-page, but this discussion actually starts at the top of the uh, of the top of the daf. Um, actually, the line, the previous line, the last line of Lamed Zion, uh, So they raised a case before Rabbi Chia Bar Abba. If somebody forgot a pot on, on Arab Shabbat on top of a stove, right, a kira, and it cooked on Shabbat, mahu, what's the halacha? So he was quiet and he didn't say anything to them. The next day he came out and he taught the following. And what he taught was that if it was, as Anne explained before, right by accident, he just simply, this person just left a pot on top of the stove and it cooked, right? Then it's, they're allowed to eat it. If it was on purpose, they cannot eat it. And it says, the halacha is not different. So then the Gemara goes on, like, this is a weird phrase, my veloshna. What does it mean, veloshna? So they said, because it's no different, because Rabba and Rabbi Yosef both said, right, to interpret this, it's that this would be allowed. That is someone who cooks um, and per- it, the one who cooks is performing an action. If he did it, if he doesn't intentionally, he can't eat what he cooks. But if the person, right, somebody forgets it and he does not, so therefore he's not performing the action, right? He's not, with intention, he's not cooking, Okay. Then in that case, right, what do we say? Um, but we, sorry, but we say, but even if that was intentional, that he left the pot there, he can also eat that food. So we say here, right, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Amar But Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, he says, no, this has to be, we need to say that it's usser. You can't possibly say that when you forget the pot, because the intention wasn't there, that you could be allowed to eat it. Mevashelhu zelo ati li'i arume. And so he says that it really has to do with what he's basically saying is, is he's concerned about somebody who cooks is going to come to deceive, which is exactly what the Gezerah was, was there to do. And we don't want someone to come and do that. So therefore we must make it, it has to be usser in this case, even if it's a case that somebody just forgot it. But I think if we go back to the beginning, even when this question was originally introduced to Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, it's clear the Gemara makes that he had to think about it overnight. He wasn't really sure what to do it because what it's showing is it's possible to complete a prohibitive action with no intention at all. And particularly with cooking, I think that is a malacha that's different than, let's say, I don't know, if you accidentally erase something or you accidentally trapped an animal. Like there you could see where it sort of like really happens, um, where something got completed accidentally. But I think with cooking, where there's also an immediate benefit, right? Like you accidentally left the pot and now you're going to go ahead and like enjoy that food. It becomes much more complicated to say that that would somehow be okay. And I think that's ultimately why they did have to arrive at this gazera of saying, even if it's Peshogate, even if it was unintentional, we, we just, there's no way that we can say that it's allowed because too many people are sort of accidentally leaving their pots, you know, on the stove. 
I think there's also this aspect of strengthening the halacha and the awareness of of Hilchot Shabbat, you know, in people's homes, so to speak, right? Because I think it's much harder, maybe this is just my modern sensibilities, you know, projecting backwards, but I think it's much harder to forget that something is cooking. I think it's probably easier to forget that that particular, you know, manner of cooking, depending on the pot, depending on the food, depending on the hour, etc., is prohibited on Shabbat. So I feel like the moment they come and they say, listen, you can't, you know, employ this forgetting excuse anymore, it strengthens the concern of making sure that people are not cooking on Shabbat. And then it increases the awareness of the fact that cooking on Shabbat is usher, is prohibited. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's the exact intent, but that is, you know, a necessary outcome that the, you know, like I said, like I said, when we opened, I said, uh, you know, this is the, we're in the middle of, you know, the essence of Shabbos, where so much of what we pay attention to nowadays is about cooking on Shabbos. So this is where it all begins, right? Because it used to be more lenient. There used to be more wiggle room to, you know, to forget and to continue and it would be okay. And we can't do that anymore. Right. Um, I just want to skip down to the Mishnah that's at the end of the Amud uh, that reads as follows. Tanor shehisiku bekash ubegivava lo yutain bitocho al gabav. So an oven, a tanor, right? But we're going to use the word tanor here. That was lit even with straw, just rakings, which before with a kira, which was our first case, was permissible to place a pot on top of. Here, what do we say? You can't put anything, you can't place a pot either on top or inside of it. Kupach, but this uh, item that's called a kupach, shehiskiu bekash ubegivava, which is also heated with or lit with straw or rakings. Hareza kikiraim, that's like a kira. But with the, but if it's lit like with gefet or etzim, right, which retain more of the heat or there's more likely that you'll go to rake the coals, then it has the halachic status of a tanor. So this is another layer to all of this. Today, first we talked about intention, and now we're talking about the actual cooking apparatus. So the most lenient one is the, the kira, which I kind of imagine is sort of a stovetop. And Anne and I did look for some pictures, but we were not able to find anything that really satisfied us. Um, and if we do, hopefully by the time we put this, maybe we'll have found something. Then we have the tanur, which seems to be something that retains so much heat that you can't even put something on top or inside of it. And then we have this thing that's called a kupach, which seems to be sort of an in-between, right? If it's lit with the straw, you know, something that burns out very quickly, you are allowed to place a pot on top of it. But if it's lit with the gefet or the etzim, right, with something that's going to keep more of its heat or that you may come to rake, um, then we have to treat it like the tanor and it's it's not permitted to put something on top of it. Um, you know, tomorrow we'll talk about the question of using other heating sources like the sun. But I think it's interesting to see that even an oven is not an oven. Different ovens, the the what you use to heat the oven makes a difference, right? We have the two categories of the kash and gavava versus the gefet and etzim and the actual, so the heating source and the actual structure of the oven also makes a difference uh, as to whether or not you can leave the pot on it. So nothing about bishol is simple at all. Really not. And then, you know, taking that and applying it to our modern appliances, you know, and we're, as you say, we're looking for pictures. And of course, everything that comes up first on for Shabbat oven is 
modern contemporary ovens with Shabbat mode, right? Which is a whole newfangled thing. Um, and I was a little disappointed. I wanted those ancient pictures, which we're going to keep trying to find. I think my point is just that, you know, trying to line up these descriptions with something that we can identify without a picture for me is a little tricky. I Yeah, I think we need to see. So if any of our listeners, hopefully by the time you heard this, maybe we have something up. But if somebody has something that they've come across, that's a good example of what the three types of, you know, oven stoves are talking about. Uh, we'd love to share that with everybody because I think is it is important to see and to understand what the differences are. Uh, so with that, I think we'll end. Uh, that's our job for the day. Rank us. Well, first of all, a big thank you to everybody who joined us. Uh, on our great Zoom uh, sheer meetup that we had yesterday. It was wonderful to see so many faces and to have a great discussion. And we're hoping to do more of these in the future. Um, and then I'll continue with my regular bit. Uh, please rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron web- website. Uh, drop us a comment or share a picture on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, staff, go and learn. Thank you.